certainly during the process, especially back when it was a play, I had teachers that said, here's why it's never going to work. And they pointed to the light bulb above me in the room and they go, people already know it's good. For me, it was the hope that in those scenes where we're lighting up towns, it could somehow maybe feel like as if you broke the news to everyone tomorrow that teleportation is possible. Just things that right now we go, absolutely no way, can't exist. And then the next day, the whole world goes, excuse me? This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about The Current War, a new film about the ultimate format war, AC or DC. And while the story is rife with drama, an even bigger drama was playing out during the making of this movie. This War of the Currents was a civil war during America's peaceful Gilded Age, and the battlefields were cities and towns across the country. 130 years later, we still use the dominant choice from this conflict. The story pits two titans of industry, Thomas Edison and George. George Westinghouse. In the film, they are played by Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon. There's a contest between you. This is a battle for the brightest minds of America. The man that controls that current controls the future. And add in Nicholas Holt as Nikola Tesla and Tom Holland as Edison's assistant. And you have a star-studded prestige picture that's just in time for award season, 2017. What you probably don't know about this movie is that this film was initially set up as a holiday release by the Weinstein Company. Yeah, that wine scene. It began Thursday with a scathing New York Times report. Stories of women... After that infamous story broke that fall, the film was essentially put on ice. Thankfully, Martin Scorsese, a producer on the film, was able to get control, reshoot, and finally release the picture two years later. My guest was close to the center of that turmoil, and you won't want to miss his take on what it was like having his hopes smashed at the time because of personalities outside the creative team behind the picture. But first, let's set up the story of the movie a bit. It starts out in the 1880s. The two currents at the center of this war are alternating and direct current. Thomas Edison, coming off the invention of the light bulb, was a strong direct current supporter. It was low voltage and required power stations close to the customers, which, of course, Edison provided. Inner alternating current. This was championed by George Westinghouse. By transmitting over longer distances at higher voltages, you could then step down AC voltage closer to the sources that used it. The format was clearly superior, so Edison only hope was to allege that AC was deadly. There's a subplot in the movie involving the first electric chair. At first, all electricity was used for lighting, but customers were eager to use it to power heavy machinery and appliances. Nikola Tesla's invention of the polyphase AC induction motor finally solved that challenge, and the rest is history. I don't want to spoil the movie, so I'll leave you guessing that what ultimately won out. Okay, we, we do spoil it in the interview. My guest's job was to make these technical concepts both entertaining and easy to understand. No one wants to feel like they're in a high school classroom, even if it stars General Zod, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man. Also, as my guest says in the cold open, how do you make a phenomenon like turning on the lights a special moment? We take it for granted. After seeing this film, I think you'll agree that it captures the fear and excitement that our ancestors must have felt stepping into the electrical age. Plus, it also stars Beast from X-Men. 
My guest this week is Michael Mitnick, screenwriter and executive producer for The Current War. The film's been on my radar since it was announced years ago, and when I heard it was finally hitting theaters, I had to talk to him. Now, this is not an adapted screenplay. It's an original work that Michael says began as a play. It was completed as a screenplay in 2011, and that year was placed on the Hollywood Blacklist, which is for the best unproduced screenplays. It was picked up the following year, and cameras finally rolled in 2016. Then, as I said earlier, the Weinstein debacle pushed what would have been a November 17 release two years in the future. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Mitnick. We're here with Michael Mitnick, writer and executive producer of The Current War, currently out in theaters. Michael, you're a Pittsburgh guy. We talked about this. Westinghouse was from Pittsburgh. His name is over a lot of buildings still in that town. So you had to have been exposed to that history when you were pretty young, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When Westinghouse moved to Pittsburgh as a very young man and he was completely out of money, he put his fortune on air brakes. There's a famous story of the backers wouldn't believe him. And he said, let's go for a ride. And they went on the train <laughs> that had the air brakes on it for the first time. And then a horse happened to cross onto the tracks. Westinghouse had no choice but to pull the brakes quickly. And they stopped with, I think, eight feet yeah. to spare. And that's when they, all the investors then started to claw out their money and say, oh, you know, oh my God, you've actually done something incredible. And he went from essentially a pauper to a king overnight. But more to your question about Westinghouse in Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 80s and 90s. And so it was sort of in a time when the Westinghouse name was one that loomed large in the background of what I was hearing, because mm -hmm. in some ways, the heydays, of course, of the electric light company and then other areas had passed. And then the major appliance boom had also passed. A lot of my friend's parents worked for Westinghouse or still did, but I really didn't know much about him except that he was a famous man from Pittsburgh a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And then because my father is an ethics professor and sort of a historian, I remember him saying, and he was a good guy. But it wasn't nearly till I got into researching the subject that I realized as much as I could piece together who this guy was and just how astonishingly different he was from the other tycoons of his era. When you heard that Michael Shannon was cast as Westinghouse, Michael Shannon plays some intense dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's easiestly the warmest guy in the movie. When you first heard it's like, yeah, Michael Shannon, <laughs> you know. It was a real surprise. I've been pretty familiar with his theater career because he's been in New York doing experimental plays for 20 years before anyone notices, oh yeah, by the way, let's make this guy a major movie star. Right. And then even funnily enough, one of his first credits is in the movie Groundhog Day where he plays one half of the couple that gets tickets to WrestleMania from Bill Murray. <laughs> so he's had kind of like a, a crazy, amazing career and played a band. But when he got the role, I was just shocked because, A, yes, he's so used to seeing him playing these extremely intense, dynamic big roles, which probably helped our movie. And he said, I want to do something different. Also because in the writing of the screenplay, I wanted to write Westinghouse pretty close to how I understood him to be. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, he was a guy who said, I have the better system and I'm gonna stand by it. Westinghouse can take pipes at me in the papers. And then it wasn't until after a long period of time that Westinghouse 
put a response in the paper to the Edison Electric Light Company that was even just trying to correct the issue. Yeah. And then later, Westinghouse's major transgression, if you even call it that in the film, is that he has letters stolen. And that's something that is sort of lore. It's not something that's been proven in mm-hmm. Westinghouse, yeah. but it's kind of like who else really would have done that? Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked because I was like, wow, Michael Shannon is going to play a role where he just kind of sticks by his point the whole time it doesn't even (laughs) feel hugely dramatic and because i think we got someone as talented as michael shannon and alfonso such an incredible director that you get the camera that close to his face and it feels like he's going through a full range of experiences the same way edison is except that edison is bloviating yeah and so edison benedict cumberback okay tell me you were on set do they call him benedict (laughs) <laughs> that seems yes. they call him Ben. They don't call him Ben. They call him Benedict. The entire a couple of people would call him Ben, but I don't remember it happening in front of him. So I don't know if they were <laughs> if they were people that knew him so well as to refer to it as that, or just wanted to pretend that they were. No, I was fortunate enough to be on set, and yeah, he was Benedict, and actually everyone on set was just so cool yeah. and nice and there was something about this idea of making a film about two different electricities <laughs> that everyone is like we're not here for the money yeah right 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 we're here to tell it and, yeah right <laughs> although i don't know what they got paid but still it's kind of like parts of them are just big nerds or they were into the ideas behind it i remember one of the first days of shooting to thank benedict for saying yes to the film i gave him a signed edison photo mm. and i remember I mean, he's a good actor, so maybe maybe he was having his way a little bit. But I remember him just holding it for a long time and staring at it and saying, this isn't real. <laughs> this is not real that you're you're actually giving me this. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking, like, right now they're selling Thomas Edison's hat. Right. sat on his brain. Like, you could go buy that if you wanted <laughs> easily. But he was just such a sweetheart. And getting to Edison, the character, one of the hardest challenges for Edison, my wife and I, we went and the movie's going and my wife turns over to me and she goes, Edison is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you have a hard time trying to soften him up? I think there would have been this challenge. It's like, look, we want to show these guys on even footing. I'd read somewhere that there were scenes added later with Edison's wife and probably the kids and I assume the stuff with the Morse code with the kids was added later yeah a few things first on like Edison's demeanor is that he was known for a lot of things but he was not known for being a nice guy (laughs) and that's not just through his actions but the way that he would talk to people around him and the way that he would behave he was very very loyal to the people he worked with Although he put his names on their patents, something that Westinghouse didn't do or he would have had more than Edison. Edison still was proud of like his boys and the people that were bright enough to be in a battle together. Separately and especially in business matters, he was really under-equipped. He constantly ran through his money. He's kind of a jerk. And he was not what most people would call a good husband or father. He was addicted to his work. In the writing of it, it's odd when you have someone like Benedict Cumberbatch playing Edison, who everyone thinks is going to be the hero and who everyone thinks is going to win at the end, and try to take the central character and have him be a kind of antagonist. It's generally not something they tell you to do when you're writing screenplays. Sure. But it's not, by no means, I think a kind of traditional movie, and I wanted them to seem sort of balanced. So I actually had to pull back 
they took out more of his nastiness that I wrote. A lot of the scenes where he's being a jerk, there's equally, <laughs> and the other person has a response, there's even more of an, <laughs> of an asshole remark that comes out of his mouth later, and some of them are real. But it turned into a balancing act because the version that we did in Toronto that wasn't nearly finished, the previous producer had completely neutered, mm. removed any part of spark or personality and turned him into sort of a soft, bland, put-upon person who wanted to spend all of his time with his kids, which was not accurate and not very interesting. So when we got an incredible opportunity to re-edit the film and then reshoot the film, we could portray him as a much more interesting and accurate representation of who we think that he was. To your point about the reshoots, yes. Well, the Morse code with the kids had been there since the Blacklist draft, mm -hmm. but Mary having a breakdown at T, where she can't remember the word telegraph or telegrapher, that was a new scene. There's a brief little scene where she goes upstairs carrying the kids saying it was rude. I made the arrangements when Edison decides to skip dinner with Westinghouse. But those little connective beats, I think, helped to fill out at least Mary and Edison's relationship enough mm -hmm. so that hopefully she wasn't just the wife who dies <laughs> in a movie. The dutiful wife, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly, that you at least get to see a little more into it and go, well, she did love him for what he made. Mm -hmm. And it is hard when everyone's showing up at the door and asking for autographs. And just the sheer fact that it was incredible to me because I do fool around with the timeline a little bit in the screenplay to make it a bit more dramatic, although the events happened that are true. They were just moved around the order a little bit. But the one thing I didn't have to move around that was shocking was just that Mary died. Mm -hmm. In the middle of this incredible battle for what he thought was going to be and ended up being, ironically, his ultimate legacy, even though he loses, he lost his wife. Yeah. And so it kind of, it makes a lot of sense why he was especially ticked off and pushed into trying to fight for his life and fight for his technology, because not only was he hurting from that, not only did he feel he was getting ripped off, but he was a single dad trying to keep the lights on because every dollar that he had coming in from Morgan or from anybody else would just write to the company. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us about Tesla, and I think of all the people, he's probably the most recent character with a movie. I think the last movie about any of them was The Prestige, right? Yes. Yeah, David Bowie, yes. yeah. Tesla, <laughs> he's fascinating in his own right, even compared to huge personalities like Edison and Westinghouse. And look, if I were you, I would have been tempted to load as much Tesla into the story as possible, but I think he probably felt like he had to rein that in a little bit, because it's already a big complicated story even without Tesla in the mix, right? Exactly. There are a lot of strands going on, <laughs> and there are also probably about three or four other subplots that we just excised from the film because there was too much going on. But with Tesla, you're right. He's emerged over the last 15 years among people, not just among the aeronautics and automobile company, <laughs> but just as a folk hero and as a representation of someone who, especially as an immigrant, came to the country, is perceived to have been treated worse than anyone and that if he had been given his fair shake, and if capitalism didn't have its way, he would have been one of our explicit heroes and our technology would be far more advanced than it is. And to some extent that's true, but the Tesla that lived between 1880 and 1893 
is, and again, it's a dramatic movie and not a history book, <laughs> but it's pretty close to what was going on. He worked at Edison's Paris office. His talent was noticed. He was sent to work for Edison directly. I think Paul Israel, the world's leading scholar in Edison, when I met with him, went through a lot of his papers, showed me the payroll from Edison while Tesla worked there because he's also kind of irked that there's this mythology that Edison and Tesla hated each other mm -hmm. and that if this were a different kind of movie, probably one people would want to see in larger numbers, it would be Edison and Westinghouse shooting lasers out of their hands in a very <laughs> stylized battle. That would be much, much less about making the audience understand what a polyphase motor is. But I wanted to try to represent it accurately. Even in Tesla's autobiography, he has no real beef about Edison. He mentions one thing very briefly that's somewhat negative. And then he also just says Edison would have done better if he used math instead of just guess, test, and revise. The five impossible things, which I include in the film, is to my knowledge completely mythological but it's just so much part of the story that he kind of says it and then edison says it was a joke and you move past it but the westinghouse that i think people really lock onto as the guy who got screwed and did get screwed and whose potential was wasted and who was humiliated and who was not respected for everything that he was capable of doing which was much later was in the 30s and had to do with a dispute with Marconi and it was going from radio then to wireless transmissions of energy which he just couldn't quite pull off within his age but I will end this with one brief anecdote that I remember at the very beginning of writing the screenplay I had a meeting with somebody but after I finished talking about hey I got this movie about alternating currents and direct currents and so and so the person said that's interesting I don't think that's really something we can do, but you want to see something neat? <laughs> and then he pulled off the shelf a biopic that Robert Zemeckis had written and intended to direct that was just called Tesla. Oh, seriously? From, from the late 1980s. And my favorite film is Back to the Future, yeah. which is right in that pocket. So I was so tempted to be like, please see that and once all the dust has settled i am going to try to hunt down that screenplay well i think everyone wants to see that now yeah absolutely yeah. he's someone who's just so interesting on his own that he's deserving of his own film or his own limited series or something but for the war of the currents he just had to fit in where he fit in in reality because all the other stuff would have just taken over yeah he has to be supporting in this <laughs> doing laps in swimming pools and multiples of three i mean yeah. there's much more tesla even <laughs> that we wrote that we couldn't shoot well talking about his mannerisms the way nicholas holt okay by the way your leads are dr strange right? <laughs> zod <laughs> Beast. Spider-Man, Tom from Secession, J.P. Morgan's now a household yeah. name. Yeah, Tom McFade. So yeah. Because like only one of them, I think, was before we started shooting a Marvel Character, superhero yeah. or somebody in that realm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny that like on the other end of it, we're all thinking, well, maybe this can have a life in China because people show up <laughs> to see the Marvel people. Yeah, yeah, that's the way they should be marketed. It's like beast. <laughs> Doctor Strange. I think that's what they were doing abroad. It was just like, look at these people's faces. Don't look at what's in the movie. That's right. Nicholas Holt plays Tesla. The way I would describe it as quirky, but present. Now, what I've read of him, it seemed he was completely absent-minded, aloof, flaky. Did you get that impression when reading of him? Definitely much more on the spectrum. Yeah, I think that he certainly wasn't a people person. No. He demonstrated, unfortunately, that he really had no business sense 
or anyone looking after him. If he had the kind of backing that Westinghouse could personally provide or JP Morgan could provide, Tesla probably would have developed a full AC system first, but he didn't. And he was kind of a lost person earlier in his life because he was so far ahead of everyone that he didn't have that many friends. He did like playing pool, but he's a germaphobe. He had issues that are normally people associate with OCD. He wasn't someone like Edison, who, when the reporter showed up, would make sure that his hair looked terrible and that he smelled <laughs> like crap. So that way they would continue to write the story about this genius who came out of Ohio and suddenly could just create miracles. When did the Tesla joke come about? His backer says something like, no company will ever have the name Tesla, right? That was during reshoots. Yeah, that's great. Right. There's a review on RogerEbert.com, and I don't know why I keep going back to that website, because Roger is sorely missed, but they say the movie is explaining the birth of the electrical age in overly simple terms. Now, okay, I assume this reviewer moonlights as an electrical engineer because, look, these concepts are hard to understand no matter who you are. I work in transmission for a major utility, and I sometimes don't understand it. So things like three-phase alternating current. I find myself doing a lot of this on this podcast. I I talk to a lot of very smart people. The stuff is very technical. I want my Aunt Kip to understand this stuff. So was it fun for you to try to make something like this accessible to a movie-going audience? It was a real challenge. Yeah. Because the film is PG-13. I have to make sure that a 13-year-old kid who's never had physics to an older person who similarly is not aware of it understands it because it was from the get-go. It was important to me that I wanted the audience to understand what was going on scientifically, what system Edison put in place, how it worked, why it was not as good as Westinghouse and then Westinghouse and Tesla's, namely that it was expensive and didn't work very well. And then also what Westinghouse did to improve it, that it could span distance and it used fewer resources. And then once Tesla came along, he found a way to do something no one else could, which was to take alternating current, which could be used for light, mm -hmm. and find a way to make it move a motor and apply to industry. Those are the benchmarks that we're tracking over the course of the film. And I'm used to seeing, although I wouldn't call current war necessarily a biopic, because you really only get a little bit of a sliver of everybody's life within those 13 years. But in other biopics, generally about geniuses, and about math, they show a blackboard full of um, <laughs> formulas, and then you just hear people go like, the guy's a genius, but no one understands it. And then you understand that the person is under pressure, or they're going crazy, or they're being misunderstood, and you just go, well, that genius needs to be able to fully function and spread his or her wings. And maybe it still could have worked with a kind of MacGuffin central element, but I thought if an audience can really track what's happening here scientifically, they're gonna understand the story just that much more. It became a real balancing act and I probably did 30 different versions of how to explain it with as few words as possible, how to explain it purely metaphorically, how to do it. And then at the end of the day, that kind of thing just turns into one person having to explain to another person yeah. what it is. And then you either watch the film and you go, oh, I'm learning too, and so I don't mind it. Yeah. Or if for some reason you go, uh-oh, it's a teaching moment in a film, I'm going to circle this and say there's a problem with it. When I see other films, I saw one recently that I won't say because it would spoil the film, but does a lot of flashbacks, and then you go, oh, wow, that person was never even there. But it's like from the first flashback that that's the case, and then they do like eight more just to make sure that everyone in the audience gets it. My friend and I were walking out, 
afterwards and he goes did they really have to do all eight of those what do they do think we're idiots <laughs> I, was like, I was like they want to make sure no one missed that and so i'm kind of fine being like i got the first one give the other eight to the other people and let's pick up with the story yeah people love to take shots at creative licenses on historical movies like these i remember the freddie mercury movie came out bohemian rhapsody right. came out they were he didn't tell his band that he had AIDS. it's like who cares the point is you're trying to build up the drama of them going to live aid right yeah uh, messing with the truth I think it's really just about what you're doing. So that way, like sometimes people move or will excise something from a story that's like, oh geez, you can't leave that element <laughs> out of, of who that person is. That's an enormous part of who that person was. It was just very ugly. And yeah. people don't want to talk about it because it's like, ah, uh, you're aligned with not the allies, but other things like in this movie, the bigger stuff is that Franklin Leonard Pope died from an electrical mistake using his own system, but it was a couple years later. Or something that occurred in a conversation letter to letter that I played out with the people side by side. There's a couple of things in there what I have to be thinking were probably not. For instance, you had a giant US map with the bulbs. <laughs> was that real or was that a very easy way to say these towns went to Edison and these towns went to Westinghouse? It's the latter. I wanted to have a way for the audience to track via white bulbs and red bulbs who was doing better and who was doing worse. So that way you could sort of watch the struggle. And that was something that I saw was invented for this musical play called 1776. <laughs> it's about the writing of the Declaration of Independence and you can't follow the delegates as they're voting in different ways. So there's a big map at the top that goes yay, nay, or abstain. And the clerk just moves the names back and forth. Right, the map was genius for two things. First of all, it's used in the poster. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It gets used in all the marketing equipment. That. That's cool. Yeah. And then the second thing is the alternative would have been, I guess, for effects artists to depict a late 19th century city, dozens of them lighting up, right? Yeah. <laughs> 1880s Fort Worth lighting. It's, yeah. It's like, <laughs> how would you recognize it? Then you get into even more titles and or newspaper <laughs> headlines, which I'm allergic to, but are somewhat necessary in this story for what we were able to figure out and what we did but yeah the map i was like if anyone takes umbrage that i made up a map for tracking this please just read one of the 15 books that have been <laughs> written about this subject i just don't want to waste time so people can hopefully feel like the drama's moving forward and it's like a football game or something and they're going ah down now westinghouse has the ball oh no edison screwed him on the other end of the light bulb he can't use a corkscrew anymore what's he gonna do mm -hmm. that kind of thing Edison, Westinghouse, the interactions, especially the scenes at the end, Chicago World's Fair, for instance, did they actually meet like that? I assume that that was to sum up a lot of the final ideas, right? Yeah, that was an invented exchange. They did meet in real life. Actually, it was before the war of occurrence happened, mm. and there's some record that Westinghouse may have toured some of Edison's laboratories, but later everything that was between them was epistolary. So they never, to my knowledge, met again, but the arguments that they were having back and forth about the best way to introduce technology and the way that a person in power has a responsibility to behave outside of the money that they're going to receive is something I wanted them to bring their separate viewpoints to and then also to have them have a moment at the end when we're seeing 
these people take swipes at each other over the course of the film. <laughs> I will unfortunately admit, yes, <laughs> that is an, an imagined sequence that at least I feel would be the points they'd be making. Sure. I have to think that you wrote the screenplay so you could get that Edison monologue at the end, the one where Westinghouse asks, what was it like to invent the light bulb? And he's kind of going through it. I thought that was so great. And um, I feel like a lot of people write screenplays just so you can get, man, when that scene hits, boy, it's going to be really something. That had to have been an important goal for you to try to get those kind of points in. Exactly. That scene, because it's sort of the scene of Edison's life as far as people are concerned, that along the way, over the 11 years, and probably in a lot of the reviews, people would just say, why didn't you just dramatize that scene? It's the big scene of his life. Start the movie that way. It just seemed too conventional. And the other half of it is that we take electricity for granted today. So to watch the guys looking at something that's like the glass breaks at 13 hours, the bulb lasts that long, I don't think necessarily even the most talented directors and actors could make it feel like what it felt like to Edison and his employees back then. The other option was what I wanted to try to do, which was to bring it back at the end, have it be the one thing that Westinghouse is really curious about, which is what is it like to be the person who gets to feel mm -hmm the feeling of the world changing and what is that like and then to hopefully have Edison speak about it in a way that can bring it to the excitement in life for modern audiences through his dialogue that I think must have felt that way back when he was doing the experiments. Sure. And look, Benedict Cumberbatch's doing the monologue and everything you need to know is on his face. Oh, he's everybody. They're incredible because you just get to see how little they have to do to bring something that done by someone less talented is just really dull. And they brought it to life and I just feel so lucky. Yeah, people are gonna wonder about this. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask it. The script was written in 2011. It was honored later on the blacklist. It gets made and then Harvey Weinstein happens, which has nothing to do with you or the filmmakers. And then it gets shelved. I mean, this movie was supposed to come out two years ago. Was there a point where you were like, I just need to let go of this. I'm gonna go crazy. There were moments where I should have let go of it maybe and that everyone around me from people I work with to you know, my wife just being like, this is not healthy. Also just the way that Harvey is behaving, let alone after he thankfully went down, but mm -hmm. just what the future or non-future of the movie was. But you work on anything for 11 years, you lose control of it being a job or being a project and it just starts to be part of your identity. In a way, I couldn't drop it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't let go of it. And there were enough little things popping up here and there that gave me hope along the way. Many, many, many nights, I was completely forlorn or when it got shelved. Devastated is a big word to use, but it's how I felt when I lifted something, a project like that, so high up in my life and my priorities, but I could never let go. Mm -hmm. During that time, the October of 2017, when all that was going down, did you have to be told we're basically shelving the movie or could you tell the writing was on the wall? What happened first? The experience for me and Alfonso, not to speak for him, but he's already said this in interviews, so I feel like it's okay, is that while we were editing, we get the sense that something bad was happening mm -hmm. and something unusually bad was happening at the Weinstein company, although we didn't know 
what it was, but it's just notes started to come in that had no relation to reality, that usually you can say, okay, I understand what the objective is here, but why is someone obsessing about a minor word in the sentence that has no significance either way, so says nine other people. Mm -hmm. It explained a lot afterwards, Sure, but no, it wasn't until I got a call from a close friend giving me a three-day heads up that the New Yorker story was coming out that at that moment on the phone, I knew like, oh, movie's done. <laughs> There's going to be no release. There's going to be no push. It's going to go on the shelf. And then it just became, I wonder if it can even come out because people will associate it with this other man, even though he had nothing to do with the Nothing to do with it. And the people other than initially raising money. It, Martin Scorsese came in, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable what Marty did. I had heard a whisper on the set that Marty had a clause in the contract for Final Cut, but that's so unheard of that I thought it was a joke. Mm -hmm. And then and then earlier this year when I heard that he was exercising that clause, I was just elated because at the end of the day, it's just a movie. But the fact that we got a chance to make the kind of movie we wanted because of that little thing in the contract, let alone from <laughs> Martin Scorsese. I was just like, this doesn't happen. And boy, is this great because I personally love this film and all I want are for people to see it, really. Yeah, that's all you want at the end of the day. So there's two or three pretty great scenes where folks are seeing their cities lit up for the first time. Wall Street, Chicago, the bulbs around Edison at the very beginning. We, especially as Americans, take that for granted. We build a new nuclear plant and your lights are still on, no difference. What would you like the audience to be thinking, feeling during those scenes? Because again, this is something we all take for granted. Those are very special scenes, I think, really kind of drive home how important all of that was. Sure. Right. Yeah, it's a testament to Alfonso and Chung Hoon, the cinematographer, and of course everyone who works at VFX of turning a moment that is not unusual to see a building turn on with lights and making it feel special. And one of the reasons that I think I was so attracted to this story, like a lot of people have been, I think, in the past, is this was a time at the end of magic. The advent of electricity is you'd stuff in your house you could fix yourself before, and then after this, everything changed. And the fact that out of Edison, I'm very well aware that he also borrowed stuff from other people. Stole stuff is a fine word to even say. But out of him came recorded sound, lights, and motion pictures in America that you're just like, this is insane. All three of these things that people had only heard their voices in an echo, the same guy made. For me, it was the hope that in those scenes where we're lighting up towns, it could somehow maybe feel like as if you broke the news to everyone tomorrow that teleportation is possible. Sure. Time travel is possible, or levitation is possible, or immortality is possible. Just things that right now we go, absolutely no way, can't exist physically impossible and then the next day the whole world goes excuse me <laughs> and so that was my hope yeah uh, but certainly during the process especially back when it was a play i had teachers that said here's why it's never gonna work and they pointed to the light bulb above me in the room and they go people already know it's good yeah, I'm getting back to Edison. It's easy to dog on him and everything. I think it was very poetic in a way and very meta that at the very end you show he didn't win the current war. Spoilers. He didn't Boom. win. And that's one of the things that I just love because it gets to have a surprise ending. Yeah. I don't know how many people that's, that's landing with, but this was a real comment that he made to insult. He said this, is that people will forget that my name was ever associated with electricity to begin with. I'm happy with that. And I'm moving on to something so new which at the time was iron and then rubber. 
new techniques for mining, and then eventually he ended up with motion pictures. The way I think it's meta and works so well is, okay, he didn't win the current war, oh, right. but it's yes. movies that he goes on to invent, which we are watching this oh, yes. whole story unfold on, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was great that it's a surprise ending that Edison loses because we all associate him with the light bulb and electricity still, which was maybe his ultimate goal. But it was something that hopefully acts as a nice shock, definitely no pun intended, to anyone in the audience. A really fun movie like Titanic, you at least kind of know what's going to happen at the end, mm -hmm. or you know that people are going to reach the moon. But if you get to the end of a major historical event and then you say Thomas Edison lost and we don't use his electricity, I was like, oh, that's great. It has a surprise ending. Yeah, I thought that was great. Especially the person who won that no one knows even who he is. Sure. Well, look, you were talking about the director and the cinematographer. They shot the hell of it. The actors acted the hell out of it. And of course, you wrote the hell out of it and really, really enjoyed it. I really appreciate all your time on this. I want to ask you one last question. My wife works in developmental pediatrics on your website. It asks folks to donate to the National Down Syndrome Society. Tell us why this is important to you. Growing up, my brother Jeff, and still does, has Down Syndrome. It's just something that I lived with every day and I saw my family live with every day. In the 80s and even through the 90s in Pittsburgh, there was not a lot in place structurally to help families with kids who have special needs. It was still the kind of time where you ship them off to one school and they mm -hmm. all go together. It's important to me just because I want people to have as many resources as they can um, to make their lives easier because whether it's Down syndrome or anything under the sun, when you're a primary caregiver for someone else, in addition to the rest of your life, it's life-changing and it's a lot of work. Well, we certainly will link that as well. And appreciate you talking about that. I don't think that gets talked about enough. Michael Mitnick, The Current War, go out and see it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay, and thanks for having me on the show. That was Michael Mitnick, screenwriter and executive producer of The Current War. A little more on him, he has written several plays. His first, while at Yale School of Drama, featured future Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o. He was executive story editor on the HBO series Vinyl and is currently developing a biopic of another great American, composer Leonard Bernstein. I want to thank Michael for his time and sharing his stories, as well as Ilana Wallen at Grandview in L.A. for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures on energy cast com as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 70. Be sure to join us next week when we discuss the long green history of renewable retail energy with the oldest provider in the country. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.